This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Chris Show. Chris just got a wonderful verdict now, even during this age of COVID, and he's agreed to come on and talk about it and talk about his practice and how he got that great verdict. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Michael. How are you? I love having you. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to someone. I'm just getting some judges tell me that we might actually try some cases this year. Aside from just the show, I'm so wanting to learn from, you know, how y'all did it. And so hopefully I can do the same. Uh, so let's just start with a headline and then I'll kind of cut to some of the background. So what kind of verdict did you get and where'd you get it? So we got a verdict to the tune of $13,966,000 in King County, Washington, which is Seattle. And um, it was in a case where my plaintiff had mesothelioma, has mesothelioma, still living, obviously terminal. But um, because it was a terminal cancer case, the judicial committee got together and asked judges which cases should be the first up. And our judge, Judge Rule, spoke for us. And wow. he had the opportunity to be one of the first cases. And I didn't really feel like we had a choice. We can go into more of the backstory, but... yeah. That was the case. He chose us because it was a terminal cancer serious case. I'm glad you got the opportunity, and I'm glad that uh, your client got the opportunity to, you know, get some sort of justice. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't trade slowly dying of mesothelioma for $13.966 million, but mm-hmm. at least he got something, you know, some opportunity to be heard, and maybe the money could bring him some comfort and joy in life while he's still here. I know a lot of times the manufacturers try to spread those things out until the client dies, hoping that it'd be worth less money. It's evil. And that's another story because that happened in this case. Yeah. Before we get into the details, I want to just get a little bit about you. So tell us a little bit about you and your practice. And So I detoxed tort. I got in this all thanks to my dad. My dad was an asbestos insulator in the uh, Golden Triangle area, the Gulf Coast area of Texas. And, um, after he um, decided he didn't want to do asbestos insulating work for the rest of his life, he went to uh, the University of Texas at Austin, got a degree, got a law degree at U of H, and he's one of the early guys doing asbestos work. He got me started, and he passed away in 2016, but um, he had left a lot of goodwill, and um, to this day, I benefit from the goodwill that my dad left me as well as all of the experience that I gained under him. So I, I, 
I'm an attorney. I had to move out of uh, Texas after tort reform. My sister, however, is my law partner, Angela Madekcho. She stayed behind in Houston to manage our still existing Texas practice, which is, you know, it's, it's had to change because of tort reform, but it's still there. And I manage our California office. Well, California, when it's not, at least I don't know how it is now with the fires, it's generally a fairly pleasant place to live. Yeah, the fires have made the air quality index go in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Here, I love the people. I love, I love everything about it. Miss Texas, but I love, love it here. It's amazing. You know, I, I worked for another lawyer from when I became a plaintiff's lawyer and moved back home to Brownsville, Texas in 97 until he left in uh, February 99. I had to go off on my own. And we were local counsel for Barron and Bud on, I think, 10,000 asbestos cases that were Alabama cases, but somehow they could follow them in Texas because there was a Union Carbide factory at one point in Brownsville, Texas. And and I remember thinking back then that no point in going to asbestos because this is 1999. These these cases are going to be done in five years. I need to specialize in something else. And uh, there's not. It's amazing. They've been saying that since 1984 when uh, John's Mamble went in. To bankruptcy. There's not much left, but because there has been such widespread failure to disclose asbestos content of certain products, especially those containing talc, we still see asbestos-related disease in large numbers to people who have no idea they're exposed. Yeah, it's disgusting on one hand that people would expose people to such a well-known toxic substance, you know, decades after we've known how bad it is, but it's uh, important we keep looking up for those cases. I guess you kind of, you know, I guess your dad would teach you, because the asbestos world is kind of its own world, uh, from what I learned as far as it's hard to break into, learning who to sue, what the theories are, the medicine, it's such a well-developed tort in some ways, but then it's constantly evolving, so it's, you really, it's not something you just go take one asbestos case and get into it. But from the trial skills point, because just knowing the science is not enough to get a 13, almost $14 million jury verdict. I mean, you need to know how to try a case. What have you done to develop yourself as a trial lawyer? That, developing myself as a trial lawyer involved developing myself personally. When I had my first child, my wife and I, we got together and decided that I was going to take about a five or six year break from trying cases. Wow and just build the family. She knew and I knew from seeing my dad and a lot of his friends that the law is a jealous mistress and a lot of families had been broken up because people dedicated themselves to practice of law and not the practice of family law. So experiment and just build the family first. And after we had a, a, you know, a strong, stable, loving family and a strong, stable, loving hold on our personal life, then act and do our trial work. And it has, for me, since getting back into the trial work a couple of years ago, it's been, it's worked wonders. Wow. That's funny because everyone knows I'm going to keep working and I'm going to not, you know, one day when I somehow hit the right case, then I can enjoy my life. Your way seems to make a lot more sense. Yeah, because I mean, I want to continue to do this, you know, throughout, I mean, this is what I want to do forever. As long as I'm able yeah. to on my feet, I want to do this. So have you, you know, anything you've done to study or anyone you've worked with to learn skills for trying cases? So after my dad died, I went to the trial lawyers college and I did the three and a half week. My wife will tell you it was a month long. Yeah, it was when I went there. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Well, so you know. <laughs> but yeah, I went there and went back for a graduate program and met Eric Penn. Uh-huh. And Eric Penn, talking to him about how he obtained that incredible verdict in Texas. It's inspiring, isn't it? And it inspired me to go to learn with Sard Lamont. That's funny. That's how I met Sard Lamont. <laughs> Is it too? Yeah, Eric Penn told me he worked with her to get ready for his opening, and I was getting ready to try a case, and I wanted to get ready for an opening, and I've been working with Sard for a little over a year now. Small world. Well, Sard Lamont's techniques, and I, I need to give credit to all these different, mm-hmm. different helps, but Sard Lamont's techniques played directly into the the techniques and the language that was used in this case. Sorry, and then Jesse Wilson also, his his method of developing the story you tell the jury was very effective because we had minimal damages presentation, but obviously the verdict, I mean, 13.6 million of it is non-economics. Oh, wow. So only 366,000 is economics. So the damages story was obviously effective enough with this very conservative engineer and accountant um, and teacher, heavy jury. Wow. So really those three, but I mean, I've also been reading a lot. I, Nick Rowley is inspiring. Yeah. Uh, I read his books. Keith Mitnick, obviously. I read Rex Paris. Anytime Rex Paris talks about books to read, I mean, I go to Amazon and I buy those books. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much the background of the, te- the trial techniques that I use. But it's a lot of, a lot of work, it sounds like, to, to kind of sharp, get the tools you need to go try a case. It's everyday work. Every day you work. Every day I'm up at 5, 5.30 in the morning, work on myself, make sure that, you know, I'm comfortable and I'm, my body is in a situation where it's comfortable so that I don't have, as Sard Lamont would say, body language contradicting my spoken language which uh-huh. would believed over my words and uh, to have a comfortable body situation is is important i think was helpful to us in this case absolutely so tell me a little bit about the case then itself it was a hard-fought case the man was a 68 year old living mesothelioma victim at the time of trial 67 at the time of diagnosis and for he, those that might not know mesothelioma is a, is a lung cancer incurable that is pretty much only caused by asbestos? So this is the lung. If um, there's a saran wrap, you imagine saran wrap around this lung, that saran wrap is a a cell thick layer called the mesothelium. And if the the asbestos is breathed in and through the nose and makes it all the way through the lungs and out to the mesothelium and the cancer develops there, which the asbestos fibers preferentially clear to the pleura, you have what's called a mesothelioma. Very rare, very always fatal disease, super painful. An awful way to die, too. It's like being slowly having water put in your lungs and drowning or something over time. You drown to death in your own fluids. You're trying to stay alive. Cool. But um, his exposure was when he was a kid, and that played into the story that I got from, you know, well, that we developed and we told in this case, he started working at nine, worked with the Kaiser Gypsum Joint Compound product until he was about 19. His dad died of a, a heart attack, and then he went on and did something else. But um, 
Yeah, there were some difficult facts in the case that made us have to drop the loss of consortium claim. And so the only damages that got in front of the jury were the actual personal injury damages to our plaintiff himself and nothing about family life or the love story. We couldn't, we couldn't talk about that. That's our plaintiff. So what did you then do to, I mean, cause over $13 million in, in person damages or non-economic damages is incredible. What did you do to, I mean, even for all the suffering you go through that, and you're going to go through with it. That's still a really incredible result. What did you do to develop and learn that story? As you know, having gone to the trial lawyers college, um, you have to understand your plaintiff very well if you want to present that. And so I did some psychodramatic work, um, making sure that I was comfortable in my client's skin, that I, I, that I felt the love for my client. We, you know, Paco Duarte, Bill Gilbert, those guys. I don't know them. I'm a, I'm a 1998 uh, college grad, and I left. Uh, I stopped serving on faculty by my own choice in 2004. Uh, so I'm. Uh, yeah, they're a little after you. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm a dinosaur in that world. <laughs> they led a group that helped me deal with issues that I had in this particular case with this particular plaintiff. And after that psychodramatic work, we had an, um, a psychodramatic encounter. You know what that is. Yeah. After that work, I was good to go. And it was just all about getting the, getting the language right. And that's when I went to Sarah Lamont and using her techniques and then going to Jesse Wilson, learning his storytelling techniques and put on the case. And just, I want to make sure I'm clear. So even after you learned the client's story, you had to do something to overcome your own internal bullshit. I don't know what the right word is that you had your own internal issues you had to get past to be able to tell the client's story. Yes. To the extent you feel comfortable, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, there was a um, there was a criminal history in this case, which was the reason why we had to drop our loss of consortium claim. Okay. So we could not present on any – the judge had made a ruling that the criminal history wouldn't come in if we did not present damages evidence to the, to the effect that our man was a, um, an ideal family man, et cetera. And I had to deal with my own feelings about the history. Yeah. Because Bill, we were doing this work. We're doing a mock voir And Bill Gilbert sniffed it out. He's like, you have an issue with your client. And I was like, you know, yeah, I do. And so he's like, okay, stop. And when you're doing that, when you're workshopping a case and a psychodramatic need arises, you immediately stop and do that work. So that's when I did that psychodramatic work. And uh, I think that's probably, it, does that answer your question? It does. And uh, it actually, it really hit home with me because I'm getting ready to try some brain injury cases. And one of the problems with dealing with clients who suffered a brain injury is they're not rational. They don't, they're hard to deal with. They don't make good decisions. And in the course of representing somebody and dealing with somebody with a brain injury, when they have a real brain injury for a couple of years, you get frustrated with them. Yeah. Uh, and you need you know, one of the things I'm realizing is I got to work through that on my end, because if I am frustrated with my client at the time of trial, no matter how much I have in my head that this is from the injury, if I don't work out my issues with that, it's going to come through in my body language. It's going to come through in my tone. It's going to be a, a, a discongruent story. So I'm just, I'm realizing that when we have, when, you know, when either something the client's story hits home personally for some reason, or if we 
we get frustrated with them and we, we need to do the work to really get past that or we can't fully tell their stories. That's right. You, you can't tell it the way you need to. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay, so it's COVID. How did you, you said, yeah, the judge that went and fought for you about being able to get to trial. What did the defense do? Did they want to try the case? So, no, they did not. As you, as you observed at the outset, uh, they did not want to try the case. They, obviously, it's advantageous for them for the client to die, and then you don't have the same story or the same damages present. So um, we waived jury to get a bench trial in, before he died. And they opposed our waiver of jury, saying oh, wow. that, yeah, unheard of. Mesothelioma case. So they wanted the jury trial. So then the judge said, okay, well, I'm going to still push this case. And he gave, he gave us some rulings saying that you better do this, this, and this, if you want to get this case ready to try, you know, my co-counsel, um, Weinstein Kajano up in Seattle, they worked with, they worked with me and it, it was just a blessing to have them on my side. We complied with the judge's order. And by the time the trial date came, we were ready to go. So what did the judge do then to assure, you know, the juror safety, y'all safety, everything else when you're trying this case? So the first couple of things that he did, the jury summonses went out via email. The responses were, were fielded via email. All of the hardship questions were concerning COVID and everything else were handled before the panelists were examined, before war deer. And in handling all of the COVID-related hardship issues, we pretty much took care of all of that. And I mean, I think that you've probably been on the same, been on the same plaintiff's attorney email chains I have. We know, we knew that the, the jurors who are not afraid of COVID are our most dangerous jurors. And the jurors who are there, even though they don't want to be, are our second most dangerous jurors. So um, when we got the responses as the questionnaires back and we knew who the, the, heart, the COVID hardships were, the judge, in order to safeguard the, the safety of the panelists, just said, well, y'all have any issues of letting, letting this go? And I was looking at the list and I was immediately half the panel. And at that moment, I said, no, you know, let him, your honor, no okay. Defense counsels, they also agree. No, no objection. So immediately, the judge taking care of the safety of the panelists allowed us to also take care of our biggest concerns. So then that was already a head start. Were you worried because the jury summons were by email that, uh, you know, you weren't going to have is, you know, because it's not like you got a conservative jury point. I know you're in Seattle anyway, but there are people out there that don't have email that might be good jurors or don't have ready access to computers that it was going to change the demographics of your potential jury pool. Yeah, and it did because the response wasn't great. The response to emails wasn't great. You didn't get everybody that you would typically see in a King County jury. Instead, you got people who had means and you had people who were always on the computer and engaged with technology. And anybody who's done any jury research knows those are, those are people who are probably a little more conservative. Yeah. So yeah, that did play, but when you have a, a client who's going to die, if you don't try this case now, I mean, you just kind of do the best you can. Yeah. And that's what I've realized. When, you know, as we're sitting here without a clear end date that 
we may just have to try cases the best we can with the best panel we can get. Um, so did, how did y'all do the jury selection? Was it in person, by Zoom? How was that done? Both. And, and that to how we did it and the techniques we used. So there were a total of six panels, four Zoom panels of eight, one Zoom panel of and two who two live who had who were live because they had issues concerning Zoom and security. Okay. Personal issues, which I understand. I mean, that's reasonable these days. So we had two shows up live, and you could tell the difference having Having done six uh, panels over the course of two days, you could really tell the difference that it made. <laughs> how, how was that? So when you're looking, like you and I talking right now, I mean, it's wonderful. Um, you know, we're, we're simpatico, we're on the same side, and we're trying to help. But when you don't know anything about that person other than what's been on a piece of paper, you don't have that same connection. Right. Not being able be present and observe that person and have that person observe you it, it it's difficult because we as trial lawyers work so much on our um, nonverbal gesturing and physical presence that for us it's it's an incredible advantage if we've done the work over defense counsel who who's never gone to trial lawyers college who's never gone to sorry Lamont who's never worked with Jesse Wilson you know yeah so um, I felt that I connected much much more strongly with the live panelists. And the jury you got, how many of them came off the Zoom panels and how many came off the live? 14 came off Zoom and one came off live. Okay, so even though you had a bigger connection, that wasn't a lot of the people. How many people actually got to vote on the jury out of the 15? Out of the 15, only 12 voted. Okay, I just different states do it different ways. That's why I was asking. So when you were doing the in-person jury, uh, and one of the reasons I'm asking so many detailed questions is I promised a judge at a hearing yesterday that I was going to take the I, – I, interviewed another lawyer out of Pennsylvania, Brandon Lupiton, who recently tried a case there, and then I'm interviewing you today. Uh, and I promised my judge I was getting him transcripts to show how to try a case safely if they'll let me get to trial in October. <laughs> so what safety measures did you all take to protect everybody when you're doing the in-person voir dire? So talking about safety measures, I need to email you a picture of the spacer they use. They put chairs next to each other, separated by a wooden spacer, that had notches that were six foot in length that would fit on top of the particular chairs that they use at the Maidenbauer Convention Center in, C in uh, Bellevue. And so they, they spaced the chairs. Everybody in the courtroom was masked. Never saw me without a mask on my face, not one second. Throughout from voir dire all the way to closing argument. So we were spaced, we were masked, and um, we, during break, we attended to our lunch and, uh, and counseling needs on a different floor. So those are the main safeguards given to the jury. And the actual jury selection, then it sounds like you didn't do it in the courtroom, you did like at a convention center, so you'd have more space? Correct. And when you actually were trying the case then, where were the jurors seated? So if you imagine a conference hall, it has a 20-foot high roof, that is probably 60 by 80 feet. One half was dedicated to the, the court staff on the, on the side, the judge on a day in the back, at the two large screens, one behind the judge and one behind the court staff, the center, the galley, 
or the um, the well was open and that was accessible to a uh, a stand, and uh, it had like a computer with a with an Elmo on it that you could project onto the screen. And then on either side of the well was the defendant and the plaintiff. So that was the setup. And then on the other half where the jury was, every juror was six feet from one another in every direction. And yeah, and you said you have a picture you can send us so we can put it on the show notes? I, yeah, I, I have a picture of the spacer. Inside, I don't know that I have. I don't know that that That's was. okay. Yes, anything, yes, anything. I think. I don't know about everyone. I mean, the, the judge yesterday said I was in the minority, but there's some of us that are dying to try a case again, but we don't want to literally die to do it um, or result in any juror dying to do it. Uh, so we want to figure out, you know, how can we, the more we can learn about how to safely do this. And it sounds like you all safely did it. Michael, if you, I've made myself available to some friends in the Midwest. It's helpful for me to, to Q&A with anyone. Just let me know. Okay. We need to get the wheels of justice turning again. We absolutely do. All our, all of our, you know, our, what I call our regular cases are still settling, but our, all our big monster cases, you know, until you have that real trial, you know, until you get in, in the courthouse, they don't get serious. So if I can help, just tell me when and where. Chris, I really appreciate that. Each year, the law firm of Callen Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. So let's talk about, so you picked your jury. You're going to, now, were you stuck at the, uh, kind of at the lectern when you're speaking to the jury, when you're like doing an opening or were you able to walk around some? Uh, and lectern was the word I was searching for. <laughs> no, you know how we are. I mean, trial lawyer TLC says no lectern. And so I was never, I did not use a lectern. I, um, when I examined a witness, now opening an argument was very different, right? But when I was examining a witness, I was seated in a chair. I had my computer up and I, I was looking at the, uh, the Zoom screen and all the witnesses appeared. One appeared live and every other one appeared via Zoom. Okay. I was sharing the screen to examine, uh, the, examine the witness with a document and then that would be cast up on these large screens that I, that I mentioned that were behind the judge and behind the court staff. So all of that was seated. All of my witness presentation was seated. I was going to ask if you could approach the witness, but I guess if they're by Zoom, you couldn't anyway. You know, and I know you could not, but the, the jury, as you could probably imagine, likes to see some activity. Yeah. So um, what I did was when I wanted to introduce an exhibit, I would stand up, you know, and you know, very certain a copy to the court staff, a copy of the exhibit. I'd walk across and I would stand in front of the defense counsel and I would hand a copy to the defense counsel. And when they said objection or no objection, I would then ask permission to approach and I'd give it to the judge and I'd come sit back down. Maybe unnecessary, but absolutely recommended if you want to keep the jury awake. 
Yeah, I think you need something to just change it up and not just be watching the screen all day. So did you have your back to the jury when you're questioning witnesses or your front or how were they kind of situated? No, they were to my right and the judges okay. to my left. Oh, great. And was it an actual courtroom or did they like rent like a hall or something? The County of King has rented the Maidenbauer Center for some monthly sum. And the Maidenbauer Center now is no longer inactive, but they have income and they provide their, their IT staff and their coffee cart staff and their security staff and make them available to accommodate all the court needs. Okay, so it's like a big conference center instead of like, a, like where we'd have a CLE or some of that type of room. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the equivalent of a continual CLE. Yeah, great. Yeah, because that's I was wondering, some of the courtrooms that we practice in have been really small. I guess we'd have to encourage the judges to find some other spaces to do them in. So let's talk about your opening then. You said you worked with Sari on language. Yeah. About that. Yeah, in some of the voir dire, I was able to do the Sari de Lamotte technique. In some of it, I was not. It, I had to save the panel because we were about to bust it, so I had to do straight you know, TLC tribe building. Yeah. Um, but the, the, at the outset, the very first couple panels, I used Sard Lamont's technique of getting the language from them that I would be then employing in the case by asking them a question that I had crafted with some hostage to hero members in a Bordier circle. And the question was, so you have it up. Okay. The question is, what should a company do to make sure it sells a safe product to the public? That's the specific, very, very succinct question that I asked. They gave me the answers back. I take those answers and I put it in my opening. And then I take to create the ring the bell, you know? Yeah. And, and then I take those answers and I put it in my closing to give it back to the people that I thought were going to be the, the thought leaders in the, in the, on the jury. And it worked. So you actually went and incorporated some of the, the what the jurors, answer, how they answer that question into your closing. Not only I reached for it because one of the, the juror who was the we thought was the likely four person and who was the four person on this jury gave me something that fell outside the quote unquote ringing of the bell. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I found a way to incorporate that language into my closing. When I did it, his head, you could see his head shot back like this. Can you, can you give us more detail and tell us what, you, what it was? If you remember. We had uh, strict products liability and negligence. Those are our two right. causes of action. And, um, Negligence, you know, strict price liability, you don't need it, but in negligence, what would a reasonable company do under the circumstances? And I, here's what I did. I, I, I used a little bit of the NLP and a little bit of the thought, and I said, well, what does a reasonable company do? And I just kind of sat there, and I looked at everybody on the jury. What does it do? I asked it again. And then I looked at him, and I said, well, we know what a reasonable company do because we've seen them do it. They would recall. They would warn, and when I said recall, that's all he needed to hear. Yeah. And so that, that's how I did it. Awesome. You mentioned the term ringing the bell, and I work with sorry, so I'm, I have some idea what that means. I don't know that everyone listening does. Can you tell us what it means to, when you're talking about using the technique of ringing the bell? That's your liability mantra. Ringing the bell is the three facts in your case that prove that your defendant is liable and responsible. And for this particular case, they didn't warn, they didn't test, and they didn't provide safe instructions. That's my ringing the bell. That's an example of three things that showed that my company was, that my defendant was liable and they were responsible. 
they needed to be held accountable. And you make sure you repeat that over and over again throughout the trial? I, I didn't have the opportunity because of the way that we presented a lot of the witnesses, but okay. with one of their expert witnesses, they didn't call a corporate rep is the reason I say that. They ended up not calling their corporate rep. But um, I ended up using it with one of their expert witnesses. I used it in opening, obviously, and I used it to close. Yeah, that, that still works. I mean, you know, as long as you do it, obviously it works. I mean, you got a bigger, bigger burden than I've ever gotten. I'm not going to tell you how to try a case. So tell me about doing, talking to the jury with a mask on. That's one of the things my partner and I are doing a work day on our trial tomorrow in, uh, that we have set in November. And then I'm going to work some with Sari on it. But one of the things I'm really, I guess, having trepidations about is how do I talk to a jury with a mask on? What was that like? So we go back to the whole Sari Lamont's, I've found a light motif in all of these different psychologists, psychoanalysts, jury consultants, trial theorists, all of them, there's an underlying common current. And basically it's, you got to be at ease and you have to be easy with yourself internally such to where you can be loving and kind to this jury. And because it all comes out to the eyes. I was going to say, because they don't get to see the rest of your face. That's right. The eyes are, it's like that if we are in a room and we see everything nice and bright, we don't really have to pay attention a whole lot. But if I, if I turn these lights off and all we got is just a shimmer of light reflecting from another room, I'm going to pay real close attention to those things that I can see. And when you don't have, we love, we're attracted to looking at other people's faces. And if all of a sudden your face is all covered except for the eyes, then you are exactly the same position. Your jury is in exactly the same position as you would be if you were in a room with very little light. You're looking at the things that you need to look at in order to be able to safely navigate. And if they want to know who to believe, they're going to be looking at your eyes. Do you do anything to try to gesture more or anything, or you just, you're just going to be comfortable in whatever happens naturally? You know, I gestured less. Really? Yes. You have to appear... For me, I mean, I, I mean, there are a lot of people who are going to be listening to this who try a lot more cases than, than me. But for me, I find that I'm most effective when I'm calm and when I'm, when I'm just open and considering that other human being that I'm interacting with. I have to be at ease. So my body isn't very active. Okay. And look, you have to be used. Though. I mean, what, you know, what, like Sari says, you know, the, the worst thing you ever see is a lawyer trying to imitate a Jerry Spence closing, for example. I mean... You yeah. have to be yourself. And uh, so no, I was just curious about that because that's one of the things I've been like, do I have to gesticulate more because they can't see my face? Do I, you know, it's just something I've been thinking about. Tell me about how you structured your opening. Structured my opening by focusing probably about 90% of it on the conduct of the defendant, 5% on damages, and then the rest of the 5% of, of it was just, you know, this is an important time in, in this country. I didn't move away from the elephant in the room. You know, what you're doing here is, is, is a big deal, as the judge has said repeatedly. And this judge had said repeatedly at one point, even getting a little emotional, as I did during the only live panel. I got a little, little emotional, something that I try not to do in here. But that was, that was my opening. You know, I just focused on the acts of the defendant and getting across to them that this is a story about all of us. What do you mean it's a story about all of us? That's brilliant. That's why I really want to hear a little bit more about that. This particular, I think 
we should all try to do this in all of our cases, but this particular case was tailor-made for that type of theme because one of the, the liability exhibits was a map of the United States with the centers of manufacturing and distribution for this company. And looking at that map of the United States, you could see it all the way up and down the eastern, southern, and western borders of this country. And you better believe that that was, that was one of the things I keyed in on an opening. You better believe that was one of the things I spent a lot of time on in, uh, in crossing their PMK, which I, luckily I videotaped it, which we're going to have to start videotaping now, every, all of our witnesses in this COVID era. But um, I videotaped it, and so we put that up on the screen with her. And then at the end, when it came time to discuss the strip products liability and about the, the likelihood of damage, that slide is a, is a slide that I put up again. So it was a story of, of them and how they treated this, people in this country. Workers, um, I hit on the fact that they were also selling this product to home remodelers and DIYers. Oh, wow. So it was a story of all of us. Really, as the reptile people say, really spread the tentacles of danger there. Good job. The, uh, so how did you tell the story of what the defendant did wrong? When you're, you know, you're doing, you're, you're past opening, you're presenting your evidence. What do you do to tell that, that part of your story? You need a villain and you need it to be concretized. And that villain usually needs to be a human being. We had a, a memo that was the earliest memo we could find imputing actual knowledge. And uh-huh. the page of that memo had a bunch of names on it. So I blew it up, highlighted the name. And I put just that section with the names on it up there. And then the very next slide was the picture of the United States. So they, they were my villain. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I've, I've, uh, and I've actually, David Ball and I've had some really good discussions on this. Uh, I've been doing a lot of thought work into what makes a villain. And so what I've been looking at is, is theater, screenplay, movie, TV, you know, what is it when they're teaching the people how to write these things, what are the characteristics of a villain? And it's, Typically, dishonesty, greed, intelligence, power, but they all, all the screenplays say it's an individual. But yet I've been told, all the time, make it about the company, make it about the company, don't make it about, you know, the low level people. And, you know, is it, you know, does it need to be an individual high up person at the company or can it just be kind of some amorphous corporation? And, you know, David Ball, who I respect incredibly, says, well, you know, a corporation can be a villain. It's like this nameless uh, you know, and I'm not so sure. I, I think that the way people think, you can't imagine a corporation doing something or not doing something. But if you can think of the executive who made that act or omission, it makes a huge difference. Now, you do you want to go as high up to find someone who's smart, someone who's powerful, someone who's doing it. You know, this is ideal. You don't find it in every case for a bad reason. And then someone who's deceptive, you know, the, the, the defendants trying to cover up or trying to, to hide their conduct. I think, you know, you get all that together, you get your perfect villain. Yeah, that, I agree with you. I uh, and it, David Ball may be right, but he's not right for me because I can't I can't integrate that. You know, my, my mind doesn't it just doesn't agree with that idea. It agrees more with your idea that a villain has to be human. So that's the only one that I can effectively communicate for that reason. I keep to have a book chapter on the book I'm writing, and that's part of you know casting the villain is one of the chapters. And I keep 
putting it in it. I haven't submitted it yet because I keep having that fifth element of being an individual. I keep putting it back in and taking it back out. And I've been doing that for about a year now. I've been working on other things during that year. But I mean, uh, you know, it's just I, I, I just can't. It's just so hard to do to to figure. I mean, one hand, I don't want to disagree with David, but then, you know, it's so hard to find that individual. It's a good thing you had that memo at at your uh, on your case. Yeah, we had a memo and we had a picture of him. Oh, you had a oh, so you had people. That's even better. You had a picture of him. Um, I, I decided not to use it in favor of the the current corporate representative. He mm -hmm. was the corporate representative, the guy who designed the joint compound with asbestos in it. Okay. I, I use their current corporate representative because I was able to interact with her. Yeah. And uh, I thought that the jury would find her more, more tangibly relatable and more willing to cast her out. Yeah. And that's very often like the, the true villains were back in the fifties and sixties sometimes. Right. Yeah. And so it is nice to have someone that you can actually question, not someone that's long dead. That's the other problem. A villain that's the villains long dead. Then what difference does the, what does the jury need to do? You need to have some ongoing reason for them to, to do something. That's how, yeah, okay. Yeah, I was about to say that very same thing. What was your reason then? I mean, if this is a product that's not made anymore, I mean, it's still out there, people are still getting sick, but that's already been done. In your head, what's the reason the jury should give a crap? So there was a, there's a kind of a sub story to this. Okay. And it came through when I was doing the, the tribe building portion of the board year and then uh -huh. argument. Th during this time, there needs to be law. There needs to be the justice system. And we need people who are going to follow the law. And the law says this, otherwise, what do we have? And um, it came through more in my voir dire in closing than in my opening. But that was certainly the way that, I, that we approached having a conservative jury consisting of uh, accountants and engineers and teachers. Well, that's something that definitely resonates with the conservative jury, too. I mean, we've got a presidential candidate that just tweets law and order in all caps, and there are people that are celebrating that. I'm not going to get political in this podcast. But, you know, but the fact is that we have laws and people need to follow them. Do If you have a more conservative jury, if you can make that your theme, I think that's a good one to have. Yeah, and the way that we did it in Vordier is those people that were more conservative were, I, I said, you know, here we have a corporation and you, you have a, a person. And the loss, you heard the judge say in the pre-instruction to you that you need to treat them equally. Are you going to be able to do that? I mean, no sympathy to the plaintiff, sure, but also no sympathy to the corporation. Are you able to do that? And I got a commitment out of, out of every one of the jurors in the, the last three panels. Awesome. You all weren't able to do that. Then we we started losing a lot in the last three. I had to keep them keep more, so I kind of changed. Yeah, it's interesting how you get in there. You talk about the you know the the consultants will tell you about the ideal juror, and I remember I got to watch Lisa Blue pick a couple of juries on asbestos cases, and they'd have to bring in this massive panel because you could strike so many people. And you know, and I've been there sometimes. I can go strike a bunch more people, but then the judge is going to tell me to come back in six months, and you know. Now, most of my cases, my client's not likely to, isn't dying, but there's still a chance of, of death, another injury. My client does something stupid and gets arrested. All kinds of horrible things can happen if you wait six more months. And sometimes you've got to get just the best panel you can get that day. We were having to get the best panel we could get because our guy wasn't going to live. I mean, I hate to say this on camera, or he's not going to be around long. So if we had busted that panel, 
we probably would not have gotten another trial date in 2020. Yeah. Then, you know, then what? So we just had to keep them all and we had to, we had to adjust our game plan and we couldn't yeah. focus on that ideal juror that we had in mind before we started. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, that's doing what's best for the client. I mean, it, it, it is, I think there is a value to him, whether he gets to collect it, whether he gets to enjoy it, there is a value to being heard and validated before he dies. I can tell you that for this particular man, he needed to be heard and validated more than anything else simply because of the issue that we faced, the life that he had led, his, his redemption story, the last 30 years of trying to be the best human being that he could possibly be. He needed that as much or more than anything else personally. Yeah. Getting that to him is one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, I realized that in the, in the last case I tried is that, you know, the case had kind of been around for a long time. Other lawyers had handled it. We finally got brought in to try it. And she's like, and, and she was so hard to get to open up. And we, you know, it took a lot, a lot of work to get her to open up. And she finally said, you know, you're the first people that listen to me. And before this case had been bumped so many times, she goes, I didn't think anyone cared that he died. I didn't think anyone cared about me. And, you know, going through trial was difficult for her, but it was such a cathartic experience that I think it's going to make some major changes in her life uh, positive because she was, whether we ever collected or not, whether we keep an appeal or not, the fact that she was, people cared enough to listen and that she was heard and that someone said what was, what happened to her and her late husband was wrong. Uh, I mean, there is just an incredible value to that above and beyond the money. The money's important too, but above and beyond that, the, I think that is so good that you were able to do that for, for him uh, while he's still alive. And hopefully he can live as long. I mean, you never, it's unpredictable, you know. With, with it is unpredictable, you know. I mean, but you, what you say, trial law can be a healing art. It we really can, can. We can heal human beings. We can heal communities. It's an incredible, I mean, this, this American yeah. system is a, is a bit of a modern miracle. Thank you to everyone who attended Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp in August. We had an excellent virtual turnout this year and are already thinking of how we can continue to raise that bar for next year. If you'd like to attend virtually in 2021, be sure to mark May 20th, 2021 on your calendar now and save the date. To stay updated with details as they become available, visit bigrigbootcamp.com and sign up for our mailing list. And now back to the show. So what did you do then to tell the damages story at trial? So to tell the damages story, we had taken the video deposition, preserving trial testimony by video deposition of, I think, uh, five witnesses. And by the time we got to trial, we, we really looked closely at the story that we could tell and that we wanted to tell. Narrowed it down to three, cut it down to 10 minutes, and made it all about a man who had worked his entire childhood. And now that he is in his final days and is enjoying his uh, relationship with his grandchildren, is living his childhood for the first time. And that's taken away because now, I guess, would you use the doctors then to talk about the suffering, the stuff he's going to go through and he's going through? Or how did you get, or did you? Yeah, we, we actually used the, even the defense for that. The defense doctors. That's yeah. brilliant. Tell me about that. How, how did you do that? So they brought a pulmonologist 
who we discovered had a history of treating mesothelioma. And he had treated them, obviously, decades ago. But there's no denying that this is an extremely painful disease to live with and an extremely painful disease to die from. So in as broad and in bright line uh, examples as we could, we asked him three or four simple questions, and then we, we blew them up in the, in the slides for closing. Right. Uh, I think it is more powerful when we can get good stuff. I mean, what was he there to talk about? Why were they bringing They were bringing him to defend on causation. Okay, so they were saying that this, this cancer was not caused by either asbestos or our, or our asbestos or what? Right. And so, but then you brilliantly said, well, yeah, I might fight that, but let me see what I can get out of them to help me. Yes, and in fact, it was my, I, I can't take credit for this one because it was my co-counsel, Alex Cajano. She did an incredible job with this man. And, and this is actually um, a teaching point aside from getting damages from him because his history allowed that, we did it. But in the era of Zoom trials, she did something that I'd never seen before. She examined him because he was on a screen and, and she knew his history and he had given a bunch of depositions before. In the space of about 45 minutes, she examined him about 60 or 70 medical articles. And by the time she was done, he was just stunned. It was just too much information for him to comprehend because he had been examined on these articles, but she just took the best parts out of all of it. And by the time it was done, he didn't know where he was. That's awesome. It's something that we can do with this type of trial. So she just got the article and just highlighted the best parts and just put it up there with him? Right. Alex Kajano, she did that. It was amazing. So what else, I mean, uh, was special about this trial? I mean, you got such an incredible result. What else can you tell us that could be helpful to us when we're trying our cases? So you have to, because we're going to be tethered to a computer screen, you have to get on your feet when you can. And that means if you're opening, if you're closing, if you are, you know, um, tendering an exhibit to defense counsel, you know, just do so with grace, ease, and love. And when you're on your feet, uh, setting this scene in an opening or a closing, really work at that. Do it dozens of times. Make sure that by the time you've, you've finished being up on your feet in front of the jury, the jury is there with you in that space. And if you do that, then I think that you will have overcome some of the larger obstacles that face us in this kind of a sequestered trial environment. One thing we're hearing a lot from defense lawyers and insurance adjusters is, you know, people are suffering so much with COVID right now, and there's over 200,000 deaths. That people just aren't, jurors just are, they're hardened. They're not going to care about our clients. They're not going to give much money. What is your thought on that, having now tried a case in the COVID era? That was used in defense's closing argument. Really? Really, really. And um, he knew Every single word that you just said, he knew because he pretty much recited that verbatim to the jury in his closing argument. Wow. And, you know, he even went so far as to say, there's a lot of people who are going to be dying painful deaths in this COVID era. They're not getting any money. When he said that, the jury set their tablets down 
Nobody wrote the remainder of his argument. Wow. So, um, and I can send you these transcripts. I mean, you'll, you'll see his words. And I think that we, if we stay stuck on that, then we, we have violated a rule we learned very early on. And that is, if you want them to trust you, you have to trust them. And if you think that they're going to be swayed by these cynical and gross arguments, well, then all that means is there's something in you that needs work. Yeah. And if you are able to stand up and, and, and put on your case and believe it, then by the time they stand up, if they have the balls to say a lot of people are going to get sick and die, therefore award no money, then what they have done is they have just ostracized themselves and they have yeah. chosen to take a leaf from the tribe. Well, that body language, I mean, the putting down the top of the notes and just absolutely nailed it. That's good to hear. We got to still, we got to believe in our juries. You know, it's, it's hard to do, but. I agree. I think that the biggest, the biggest shift for me in winning cases since I've been working with Starry is my mindset of these are good people that are here to do the right thing. And trust yeah. them. I need to trust them. And that change from being afraid they're going to screw me over to thinking of them as good people who are going to help me or actually help my client help and didn't want to do the right thing. Uh, and then I can trust them to three, see through bullshit because they're going to, they're smart enough to do it. It's just been a night and day change and my results are so much better since I've had that mindset. And it's more fun and more comfortable throughout the case too. That's an, it is more fun. And you get it and you feel like you're cloaked in this, you know, in this aura of goodness when you stand up and you're with the people that you trust, you know, it, that, that alone has to have some sort of, of body language change that yeah. fits us, I think. Absolutely. Okay, Chris, this is something that's important. Um, you know, we all, we're all trying to get better, and you just had this result that we all aspire to, to, to be where you are right now. What advice do you have for those of us that want to get better, that want to get to that level where we're getting those kind of verdicts? Right. If you're listening to this, then chances are you're somebody who's picked up a book. You're somebody who is tuned into a podcast. You're somebody who has read an article and you know a little bit about trial advocacy. What you need to do next after learning a little bit about trial advocacy is you need to get in the courtroom. And um, this time in America, the COVID era, if it presents opportunities, even though we're not trying cases right now, what I did before COVID to really become comfortable in the courtroom was I went and contacted an eviction defense organization called EDN, Eviction Defense Network. And a woman there named Elena Pop was overworked. She had many more cases to try than she could try. And so she just brought me in and said, here, try as many cases as you can. And that's what I did. Wow. And so I got in the courtroom and I tried pro bono cases for low-income, um, non-English-speaking clients. And that made all the difference in the world for me and for anybody else who wants to really be the best trial lawyer they can be. That opportunity, I'm, I'm willing to say it's there for you. It's there for your community. Um, you can develop not just your skills in the courtroom, but the love that you need to have for this justice system that we have and for the jurors that are going to be fighting for you when 
when you give your closing argument and they go into another room. That's awesome. Yeah, there are so many opportunities. There's, you know, eviction defense, there's credit card defense when someone's being sued by a debt buyer. And, you know, the if you actually go to defend someone, they can't prove what the actual credit card agreement was that the client agreed to. They can't prove what charges were made, who made them. They're trying to use someone else's business records, three company, three transactions removed. Uh, you know, you can really help some people. Of course, little car wrecks, uh, consumer disputes. There's lots of opportunities if you really want to get in there and uh, help some people and sharpen your skills. There's lots of opportunities to do it out there. Yeah, just whatever works for you. You know, if it's credit card or if it's a small car wreck case, you helping somebody for free, it will, you may think that it's taking time away from you and money away from you, but the benefits that you get from internalizing, having done something that, that worthy, that good for this society and this world, it, you'll see the benefits. You will. So you said you might be able to send this transcript or something we could put in the show notes if people want to read the stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, that would be awesome. So we can do that. If someone wants to get a hold of you and they have more questions or maybe they have a case they want to work on with you, what's the best way to get to find you? So, um, you know, my my email is um, cmedexhow at medexhowlaw.com or you can just go to medexhowlaw.com and shoot an email to that. And do you mind, since a lot of people are just listening and not looking at the show notes right now, do you mind spelling medexhow? Yeah, it's um, M A. D like David, E-K, S like Sam, H-O. Okay. So that's C, Medexho, at com. And, I mean, yeah. That's well, great. Well, uh, I so appreciate you taking the time to come and share with us, uh, you know, how you tried a case during this these interesting times and uh, how you got an incredible victory. I hope you have many more. And, uh, and I hope to be able to follow your footsteps and try some cases soon. Uh, So thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, Please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. 
This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.